All right. So good to see all of y'all this morning. As you know, we've been looking into the various Old Testament scriptures to discern and discover the identity as revealed in the Old Testament of the one about whom John speaks in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And remember we talked about the Greek, monogamous weos. It means his one and only or unique. And we went through many scriptures explaining and looking at that word, how it's used in the Greek, in the Hebrew, uh, Greek of the Hebrew, you know, from the Hebrew in, in the Old Testament. And why are we emphasizing and stressing that we must look for the evidence for the revelation that is given in the Old Testament? Because isn't the revelation of the identity of this man or any other work of God, but we're emphasizing one man, isn't the revelation of the New Testament sufficient to prove anything? Well, in one way, yes, because what proves that this is the only begotten Son? What one work proves it? The resurrection. I'm trying to help you. It's not a, I don't have a twitch. It's just, you know, the resurrection. But the Old Testament is the foundation upon which the new is built. And I've said this before. There is nothing in the New Testament, nothing in the New Testament that is not seeded and in some form brought forth in bits and pieces and shadows and types in the New Testament. There is no such thing in the Old Testament as resurrection. This is totally new. No wonder Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see his hands and feet. This is absolutely beyond understanding and belief. They are telling this man, this is what's going on. And in his theology, which was a good theology, to question that. That was a good thing. He gets a bad rap. Ray, he's just not going to say, oh, okay. He wants to see proof. He wants to see proof. Because his understanding and everyone else's understanding except Jesus is that the, re the resurrection is nowhere in the Old Testament. So is there an actual resurrection in the Old Testament? No. Are there hints and shadows and types? And we read one. Remember Abraham, 22 of Genesis. Remember that? He and his beloved son, the beloved son the father is going to take to the mountains of Moriah. Remember Moriah, the temple of God is built on the mountains of Moriah. And outside the temple on the mountains of Moriah is where the cross was. The same location. Hey, Charles, good to see you. I like this. This is good. This is, this is a solid man here. <laughs> hey, Cody. And so... 
introduce your friend. Hmm? Wait, what? Hmm? Sade. This is Sade, everybody. Everybody knows Daniel and Isaac and Cody. We know the guys you're hanging out with. So, please forgive me if I don't get beyond this today. I, I, I so am concerned that we make sure we tie everything together in a continuity rather than just moving on. Teaching is just not moving on. It's going forward, going back, replowing, then moving on a little bit, coming back again. And do, so at the end of the thing, we retain what is being taught. In most cases, we retain it. Now, so what was I talking about? Is there a hint of resurrection? So the, the father takes the beloved son. Take your son. The son whom you love, your only son, Isaac. Remember in Genesis 22? Did you see the movie? And we're going to the mountains or the region of Moriah. And on there you shall sacrifice him. Remember the father sacrifices the son. Through the means of unbelieving Jewish people and the Romans. The Father does the crucifying. Acts chapter 2 will verify that. And what does Abraham tell the servants? The lad and I, remember now, the lad, Isaac, is about a 20-year-old man at this point. He's not a little 12-year-old boy. And he's carrying on his shoulders the wood of the sacrifice. Who carries on his shoulders the cross? Until he can't, then Simon, remember. He's carrying the wood of the sacrifice. What a type. You see, whoever made all this up would never have been able to have been so tight with the type. They would have forgotten some of the details, gotten it messed up. They didn't have a computer to do that. Intricate. Everything knitted together in an absolute perfect tapestry. Of the love of God for his people. And then what does he tell his servants? Stay here. The lad and I, what, are going to sacrifice and what? And we are coming back. Some way Abraham knew God is going to bring this son of his back. God didn't tell him, go kill your son and I'm going to raise him up. Did he tell him that? So on what basis did Abraham know that his son would be raised? On the basis of what? The unchangeable, immutable word of God. Because this is the son of promise through whom I will bless the world. You see? And so this is the one we've been speaking about. And so we've come a long way and we'll get into the notes a little bit now. Jean actually said the other day, I said, I think we're coming to the end of the series. She said, yeah, well, it depends on if you finish the notes today. (laughs) So, do we understand this? We go to the Old Testament 
to find the initial statements and evidences of what we see manifested clearly and fully in the New Testament. If it ain't in the old, what is in the new ain't God. Do we have that? Do we see that the Tanakh, the Jewish term for the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and this New Testament of ours, is one comprehensive word of truth from God. Amen? Do we make sure we see that? So we've come to Psalm 2 as one of the Old Testament evidences. And so what have we learned? We've learned in Psalm 2 that we have seen that Yahweh. Why do I say Yahweh? How is Yahweh translated in your Bible? Lord, L-O-R-D. Capital L, then O-R-D, and cap, lowercase caps, correct? That's the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. It's the name of the God of Israel. It's the name of the God of creation. We have seen that Yahweh has, and remember in Psalm 2, he's installed his king upon Zion to rule over an everlasting kingdom. And he's done that. Why has he done that? He's promised it to David. Remember in 2 Samuel 7. One of your descendants, a seed of yours, a, a Davidic king, a son of David, will sit on the throne of a kingdom of everlasting nature. Why is God promising this to David? Oh, come on. Every work of God. Now, you get it this time. Get it. Every work of God. Every activity of God. Every purpose of God. Every motivation of God. Is gathered up and explained in Genesis one twenty six. Let us make man in our image. And if you were to read the rest of that verse, it talks about ruling over the things of the earth. And so why will there be a ruler over the kingdom of God? And that kingdom will come on earth one day. Because God promised it in Genesis one twenty six. Because that was the very purpose of God in creation. And of creating us, having created a world in which we live. To have a people in whom and with whom he would fellowship. So that the glory of his son would be manifested in us to the father's glory. Can you say amen? You see Genesis 1.26-28 which gives the rest, you know, fills it in the details. Is the purpose, God's purpose statement. Everything that follows comes out of that. Because this king will rule over an everlasting kingdom, he's more than a mere man. Can a mere mortal live forever and rule over an everlasting kingdom? No, something has to be different about this man. None of us are going to be here a hundred years from now or 150 years from now. None of us. Somebody made a comment just then. You think you're going to be here that much longer? Oh, no, I agree. You're right. You're exactly right. In Psalm 2, verse 7, this unique father-son relationship is then re 
stated. It's stated in 2 Samuel 7. Remember, he will be a, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And then in Psalm, verse 7, Psalm 2, he said, You are my son this day. Sorry, today I have begotten you. So again, that's the verse that Yahweh announces the time or the season, if you would, when his son will come into his new role. The son who has always been with the father, equal with the father, will one day in a time period, at a time, you know, in time frame, will take on a new role. He will take on a new role. And that new role will be, he will be a human king who will rule over the kingdom of God forever. And so one day there is coming a day when God the Father will establish his son, his incarnate son, the one who has taken to himself a human body and soul to become the king of a new kingdom so that this world may be ruled by a divine man. Do we see that? So we can really say today, there is a man who governs the universe. Are you with me on this? There's a divine man. Because the Son of God took to himself a human body and soul. In his death, that human body died. In the resurrection, God raised up that human body. Remember, without without any perishability, etc. And now the Son of God forever has taken to himself a human body and soul. Forever. Forever. And at the same time, ruling and reigning over all the universe and at the same time, ministering through a divine man. How does that work? I don't know. So all of this happens today. Today. Today, you are my son. Today, I appoint you as king. So let's talk about that word today. In saying today, Yahweh is announcing the culmination of his progressive plan to install his king as the ruler of his eternal kingdom. When did the plan of God to install his son begin? Be careful. When did the plan of God begin that plan that says, I will install my son upon the throne of an everlasting kingdom? When did it begin? Ephesians 1, 4. Before the foundation of the world. Now, now when, did it, when did it get inaugurated or precipitated in time? No, no, in time now. Foundation world is way, 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 way back there. That's even older than I am. When did it get precipitated or initiated or triggered, if you would, whatever word I can get, in time. The last three words of Genesis 3, 6. <clears throat> know these things. Know them. What are the last three words of Genesis 3, 6? I've said them a hundred times in here. Everybody. What? You know, I like you a lot more than I used to. 
And he ate. And he ate. Do you remember what we're talking about? The wife took the fruit. She partook of it. <laughs> Sounds like Bugs Bunny. And it wasn't a carrot and it wasn't an apple probably. And standing next to her is Adam. She's deceived, right, Charles? But Adam takes it. He ain't deceived. He is purposefully disobeying the will of God. And he ate. At that moment, at that moment, everything came crashing down as to the purpose and presence of God in this intimate garden. Right? Everything got changed in that moment. Just, just like that. Like you just turn off the lights. Boom. Can't see a thing. At that moment, that was the time frame in which God initiated in history his purpose to have his king upon Mount Zion. And the rest of the Old Testament is the progressive move toward that accomplishment. And then in the New Testament, the king himself is born in obscurity. Is veiled because he don't look like no king we ever saw. And he grows up. And he certainly doesn't have the carriage of the king. The robes and the guards and all that. This is just a common carpenter's son. He's some dude from Nazareth. A minor city. He hasn't been to theological school. He's a nobody. And yet disguised in this man is the very God of glory. The very God of creation. Walking about. Being vilified. Being laughed at. Being hated and misunderstood. Being lied about. Being resisted. Being misunderstood. Do you find yourself in any of those categories? Anybody? You find yourself in any of those categories. And yet he took all of it and absorbed it into himself. And carried the full weight of all the sin of all God's people for all time to the cross. This man, in the natural sense, was a nobody whose life failed. He just failed. There was nothing successful about him. I mean, even the crowds that followed him, what happened to them, Sherry? They what? <laughs> even his disciples... How many are at the cross with him out of 12? And the women, too. The women are there. The men, though, they're gone. The women are there. That says something about ladies. The men are gone. How many of the men are still left out of the 12? One. Remember his name? It's not Henry or Fred. It's John. This? This is a king? <laughs> this is a king? 
this is God's way of dealing with our rebellion so that all the effects and the consequences of our rebellion may be in this dying man so that when he rises from the dead, all of the forgiveness and the glory and the power and the honor of God in that risen man may then be given to us. That plan in the time frame initiated when? Right, you know, at the end of verse 6 in Genesis 3, there's a period. That period means the initiation of the plan to bring forth the king of glory. Correct? Are you following me? And so, the word today, the word today is an eschatological term. Eschatological. You've heard that word before. We've used it before. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Eschatological. Eschatology is the study of what? End times. The last days. The finished times. The end of it all. The conclusion. The culmination. That's a lot of words, isn't it, Anna? Those of you watching by TV, Anna did a homework. And so the word today is an eschatological term, and I want to make sure that we see it for what it is, because if we don't, we get confused sometimes from the way that, with the way the Bible uses particular terms if we're not familiar with. God's view is he sees everything at all times that ever happened, anything and everything absolutely in one moment t- together collectively instantly. Are you with me on this? Do you see that? There ain't nothing that you and I do that God doesn't see and already has seen and will see. Everything from the very moment creation began to the way, way, which never ends at the, you know, eternity. He sees it and understands it and comprehends it how? Immediately, instantly, comprehensively. What kind of a God is this? What kind of a God? So when he's saying today, he's speaking at two levels. He's speaking from, if you would, his vantage of everything being comprehended in himself and by himself instantly. Today. And he's also speaking in the, in the context of a creation time event. Do you see the distinction there? Because everything that happens today and tomorrow, where was it initially? In the mind of God. Do you see how that works? So this means that today, there are three things. The word today has to do with its originating in God. The origination of the meaning of today and the activities of today and all of that. All of that originates where? Where? In God. When? When? Before the foundation of the world. Secondly, the word today is then manifested in a time frame. Do we see that? In a time frame. And third, the word today has eternal consequences. It's an eschatological term. So what we don't want to do 
is emphasize just an event. But we want to stand back from that event, stand back from it, and see the magnificent scope of what God has done to bring about this event and what that event will eventually result in. We want to see the event of today in a much larger context. And this is what happened in that immediate point. And again, that's how we should view everything about the Bible. Everything about the Bible is what? Eschatology. You didn't think that, did you? Sometimes we think, well, eschatology is only about when Jesus returns. That's eschatology. And everything else is something else. No. Everything in the Bible is what? Eschatological. Everything in the Bible that initiates with God has a purpose in eternity. Amen? Y'all can respond. I just have to know if you're understanding or getting it. I really do have to know that. I'm not looking for a pat on the back. I'm just looking. I can't give you a test. But maybe we could. <clears throat> when I was a school teacher, okay, you know, we'll have a test. You'll see. We'll see what we're going to know. We'll find out what you know. <laughs> Everything in the Bible is eschatological. Is that new for some of us to think about? Everything is eschatological. Why? Everything originates where? Before the foundation of God, in, before the foundation world, where? In God. Everything happens in a time frame. Are you with me? And everything has a final result in eternity. The Bible is an eschatological book. So, I'll give you this and we'll close today. Just as an instance, for instance. The birth of Jesus is eschatological. Jesus' birth originates before the foundation of the world. Listen, Micah 5, 2. From you, O Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler. Remember, you're going to rule over a kingdom, 2 Samuel 7. Remember that? In Genesis 126, you shall rule. You see, you see it throughout. In, uh, in, uh, in uh, Genesis uh, 17, the Lord is telling Abraham, and from you, kings will come. You see this rule. Whose rule is, are we talking about? The rule of God through his people. A ruler will come be in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's when it began. Also, Jesus' birth is manifested in time. Luke one thirty four. And the angel answered to, to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then, on oh, Matthew 2, 1. Okay, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. It happened in a time frame. And then third, the result. The birth of Jesus has eternal results. Hebrews 3, I'm sorry, Hebrews 7, 25. He who was born in time. I just added that because that's what it's referring to. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Do we see the eschatology in the birth of Jesus? Can we begin to see that everything about the Bible is eschatology? Can you see this? That we ourselves in this very room, y'all in television land, every believer is an eschatological being. 
We're eschatological beings who at the present are in a time frame, but we weren't made for this time frame. We were birthed into this world by the will of God. We were saved by the will of God when the Holy Spirit came upon us and birthed us into the kingdom, according to uh, Ezekiel 36. And we will be in the kingdom of God forever. We are here today as God's means of getting us to eternity to be with him. That's why you're here. That's your whole purpose. And while we are here, we are to be the corporate expression of this one who went to the cross. As he endured such suffering from sinners. So we are to relate to one another in the same way. Amen. We are eschatological people. The people of God's eternal purpose being fulfilled in us at the cross manifested in power and brought to us in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus as he sends the Holy Spirit to come bring us into the kingdom. Amen. So next week we'll just continue.